Well, if you would, open your Bibles to uh, 1 Thessalonians. We're going to look there, and uh, we'll be in those, uh, really just two of the five, two of the four verses that, uh, two of the three verses that uh, Tyler read. I have my math all wrong this morning. Um, But as you're turning there, I want us to think for a moment about this concept of persecution, because persecution is something that we don't often think about or experience here in the United States. We generally get to live in peace and get to enjoy the, 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 the liberties of our free society. Now, now, don't get me wrong, we may not always like the direction that our nation is going. We may not always like the moves that our government is making. But our existence generally is not threatened. Our lives are not at stake. But that has not always been the case in the church throughout history. In fact, even recently, Voice of the Martyrs noted that in one country, there are hundreds of Christians who have been imprisoned without any notice of why they are there. They've simply been taken from their homes and put in prison because they are Christians. In another country, over a, a mob of over 5,000 people assembled together and just destroyed the home, to the, destroyed 25 church buildings in, in a very short period of time. And then they took the city manager, who also happened to be a Christian, and burned his home to the ground. Our brothers and sisters in Christ around the world face something that we only read about in so many ways. And yet, I think for mature believers, any persecution and suffering can be challenging to endure, but there is a sense in which we can and should expect suffering and persecution. But what about for new Christians? How can new Christians faith, face faith-shaking persecution? And so as we continue our look in the letters to the Thessalonians, we see that that's exactly where this young church is. Last week, we talked about how Paul, Silas, and Timothy went to the, went to the city of Thessalonica, and they, they taught in the synagogue for several weeks. Several people responded with a message of salvation through Jesus Christ. They accepted him. Others became so infuriated that, like that country I referenced, they stirred up a mob that resulted in imprisonment. Paul and Silas and Timothy eventually respected the requests of their new brothers and sisters in Christ, and they left the town in order to provide a bit of relief. And yet those Christians continued to meet together. And it seems that over the next several months, the persecution did not let up, and yet this young church continued to flourish and thrive, even in the midst of this great persecution. So Paul and his, com- his companions wrote these letters as an encouragement to these young believers, as a means of furthering their education. And I can imagine that someone coming to faith, f- faith and then immediately facing severe persecution might begin to question why they made that bold step of faith anyways. Yesterday, we were on a phone call with Eric and Lynn Bass, and we were talking about the challenge that so many Christians in other places have. In fact, there's a, one man that we've, we've been praying for for years. He, 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 he comes from a very wealthy Muslim family. He has a very good job. His wife simply thinks that he's a bad Muslim because he won't go to mosque, and yet he is a follower of Christ. He's afraid of the ramifications of what would happen in his home and in his workplace 
if he let people know that he was a Christian. And so he worships in secret. He disciples other believers, new believers in secret, even crossing, um, crossing social lines in order to pour his life into some folks, and yet he's afraid to open the door of the gospel in his own home because of the persecution that would, yeah? And so imagine what it would be like for these young believers. Now they're facing a sword if they stand up for their faith. And so Paul is encouraging them. He's saying, keep up the good work. And really, that's what this letter is is all about. You see, it seems like Paul had just received word from Timothy regarding the strengths and weaknesses of this new church, some, some of the opportunities and the threats that they might be encountering. And so he opens this letter, as he often does with thanksgiving, affirming the true salvation of these believers the source and the signs of that true salvation. So let's, let's uh, begin by considering the source of their, uh, of their salvation. We're going to kind of take this in reverse order, beginning in verses 4 and 5, the source of their true salvation. Last week, we saw in Acts 17 that several Jews, God-fearing Greeks, and leading women came to faith. Now, I want us to think for a moment about what it would have been like to be there in, in Thessalonian culture. There were some, obviously, who were Jewish. They, they believed in one true God, and they believed they worshiped in the synagogue, and they offered sacrifices to the one true God. And yet there are so many others in that pagan Thessalonian culture where a lot of their worship revolved around this pantheon of Greek gods. When you were in middle school, you may have learned about that. Some of you guys in middle school now are learning about people like Zeus and Dionysus and, and um, Aphrodite and so many of, of the other Greek and Roman gods. Well, those are the deities that these people worshiped. And their worship didn't look like our worship. They didn't come together. They didn't drink coffee. They didn't have a time of singing. Instead, so much of their worship was wrapped up in sensual and almost really sinful activities in order to appease these deities. For instance, worshiping Dionysus might entail drinking wine and strong drinks to excess. Worshiping Aphrodite would have involved sexual activities with temple prostitutes. All of their activities would have been done in a way of hoping to garner favor with this deity for something else. They were worshiping in a way in, in, in hopes of appeasing these gods, these false gods. And so Paul, now frankly, I, I wonder if that whole realm of mythology really just became a way of justifying sinful behavior. Why not just drink a lot of drink? Uh, you know, there, wasn't there this deity that used to do that? Why not engage in all this stuff? But their entire culture was wrapped up in this mythology. So now you have these people who are saved out of that into worshiping the one true God. And their, their, their lives are so radically transformed that their activity changes worship changes, their belief system changes. And so Paul notes that, that their salvation is completely different from anything, any worship that they would have had in those pagan temples. And he communicates that their salvation and our salvation is not based on any activity or service or religious, religiosity. Our salvation originates with God and with God alone. And what's more, our salvation is realized because we are loved by God. We are loved by God. Imagine how different it would be in that culture 
to hear someone say that God loves you. When everything they did was, was wrapped up in trying to appease these gods, Greek deities in their mythologies, they, they would interact with folks as a means of, of getting those people to serve them. I don't know if you guys remember the, the Percy Jackson series of books and movies that came out a few years ago. That was all based on that Greek and Roman mythology. It was a really kind of interesting story about this young boy with a learning disability who turns out that he was actually the, the son of one of the, one of the gods. So he was, he was kind of like Hercules, in between God and human. He had extra gifts. But the whole thing, his whole journey, his whole adventure is this battle, is the, is the earthly battle of what's happening in Olympus. It's as though humans are the pawns of these deities. And yet to hear someone like Paul communicate from Scripture that God loves you. You're not a pawn. You're not some instrument in their hand just to beat up some other deity. You are loved by God. Yeah, I think in the Old Testament, sometimes people misunderstand God as being vengeful and angry. We read about the discipline that God poured out on Israel, and we think, God, I thought you were a God of love. And we, but we have to recognize that God's anger and his discipline was a result of his holiness, not because he's angry by nature. It was in love that he would discipline his people. It was in love that he called them back. It was in love that he welcomed them. But scripture also reveals to us that God at his core is love. Even in the, throughout the Old Testament, we see that it is God's hesed or his steadfast love that marks his relationship with Israel. In fact, the psalmist can frequently go back to and call us to think about his steadfast love. In fact, if you have your Bibles with you, let me encourage you to open real quickly to Psalm 136. I want us just to see something very briefly. This was a, a, a hymn of worship that the psalmist would have. This was a, a, a beautiful hymn of call and response. But I want you to notice something. No, it's not gonna be up here, so you have to look in your Bibles. But every time the psalmist writes something, for instance, he begins, give thanks to the Lord for he is good. The congregation would respond with, for his steadfast love endures forever. So God's goodness is seen in his steadfast love. He, he, in verse 2, he says, give thanks to the God of gods. He's the only God who's there. His steadfast love endures forever. Give thanks to the Lord of lords. His steadfast love endures forever. And he goes through and he talks about creation. He talks about his work throughout Israel's history. And he finally concludes by saying, give thanks to the God of heaven for his steadfast love endures forever. This psalm notes that, this, this psalm alone notes that all of the wonderful things God does is because of his love for his creation. He is a God of love. In his very nature, God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit have existed in this triune relationship of love. God the Father is seen as the loving one who gives, which is why he creates, why he interacts with his creation. And then ultimately he gives his son most significantly as the propitiation or the exchange for our sin. 1 John 4, 9 to 10 says, in this the love of God was made manifest among us that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. 
I think it's easy for us to quote things like John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. But I think the implications of God's love are so much more than simply an act of benevolence, of divine benevolence. God's love is intimate. God's love is familial. God's love is near. 1 John 3, 1 said, See how very much our Father loves us, for he calls us his children, and that is what we are. Last night in our small group, we were in encouraging folks to, to share how they came to faith. And, and one person spoke up and said, you know, God doesn't have any grandchildren. God doesn't have any grandchildren. Sure, there are children, and there are children of those children who become children of God by their own faith, by their own statement of faith. God doesn't have grandchildren. He only has children who are adopted as sons and daughters into his kingdom, into his family. I recently read a book entitled Delighting in the Trinity by a guy named Michael Reeves. And I wish I had copies of this out in the book nook. But this short book is only like 150 pages long. In it, he goes through and beautifully talks about this really complex and mind-boggling concept of the Trinity. But one of the things that rings loud and clear is that the triune God, God the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, we experience that most. We experience him most in his love. I told Danielle when I got done reading it, says, I feel like I really don't love God. I don't experience my relationship with God in that intimate, loving way. Sure, yes, I love him. I serve him. I do things for him. But so often my relationship is not this delighting enjoyment of the love of God, but it's this act of service, of worship. There's a great hymn that says, here is love vast as the ocean. So I want to ask you, have you followed Christ as an escape from judgment, fire insurance, escape from hell? Or have you responded to God's love for you? Have you heard that? As Paul communicates here to these disciples, for we know brothers loved by God. Have you heard that? Have you resonated in that, that God loves you? Do you and I, do we rest, do we delight, do we dwell in his love? So Paul not only tells them that they are loved by God, but he reiterates that they are chosen by God. They are chosen by God. Now think about this. Do you remember when you, when you were in school, or maybe those of you guys who are in school, I want you to think back to going to the playground, right? You're getting ready to play kickball, and you got five or 10 people, hopefully more like 10 or 20 people there. And so you pick captains, right? And the captains start picking people. And they pick the best people first, mostly, right? They're, they're going to they're gonna pick this person because that person's got good speed. That person can throw really well. That person can do this or that. And then typically in our mode, the last person picked is the one that nobody wants, right? The one that nobody wants, unless you get a really good captain who picks the worst person first because of pity and compassion, right? But I want you to think about this. Scripture tells us that our, in our relationship with God, he chose us, not just randomly. He didn't just, do, 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 okay, I think this is my team. He chose us 
out of compassion in his love. Ephesians 1.4 says, even as he chose us in him, look at that, before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. Now, if you've responded to God's call for salvation, then know that you have been chosen since before the world, would be, before the world began. Before God started speaking things into existence, he knew that you would be part of his kingdom, that you would be in his family, that you would be his child. Essentially, he picked you first. He picked all of us first. Scripture tells us you've been chosen in him before the foundation of the world. Some of us, we might be thinking, well, that's not fair that not everyone was chosen. And yet Scripture tells us, 2 Peter 3, 9 says, The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. So as Christians, we get the joy of conveying the love and the call of God to everyone because we don't know who truly has been chosen. And if you're not yet a follower of Christ, maybe you're thinking, how do I know if I'm chosen? Well, by virtue of the fact that you're here and you're curious gives us some indication that maybe you have an inclination, you have a desire to know God. Maybe God is drawing you to him. I think that's why the Good News Club is so profound. It's such a beautiful opportunity for us to take this, this hour right after school to be able to pour into the lives of students who may not know Christ. Our town is a town of about five, 6,000 people, right? If you add in the surrounding area, we might be 8,000 people. Did you know that the number of people who attend church in our region, as far as I can tell, is less than 25%. That means there are somewhere around 4,000 people who need to hear the gospel of God, who need to know that God loves them and has sent his son to die on the cross so that they could have a relationship with him. How will they know unless we go and tell them? And it begins, as Karen said, with those children. A few years ago, there was a, a woman that, that, we, that I met. She grew up in a Jewish home. I, I think I may have told you about her before, but I want you to think about this. She grew up in a Jewish home, was faithful to, to do all the things, go to synagogue, learn, all this kind of stuff. At 86 years old, her daughter, who had become a Christian at 60, pulled her into church and said, Mom, you got to hear this. you got to hear about Jesus Christ being the Messiah. She learned, she read, she sat down with the pastor of that church. She studied the word and was like, oh, my goodness, Jesus is the Messiah. In fact, it's not unlike what Paul did there in Thessalonica, saying the, the Messiah had to suffer. Here's what Jesus did. See that Jesus is the Messiah. And so after several months of sitting down with this pastor and listening at 86 years old, she gave her life to Christ and received his free gift of salvation. So the question is, well, God didn't pick Isabel first. She was 86 years old. Yeah, God knew before the foundation of the world that, that Isabel at 86 years old would be drawn to Christ. It just took her 86 years to finally hear and respond to the message. Have you responded to God's love for you? 
So Paul encourages the Thessalonians with the true source of their salvation, but he also encourages them by noting that he sees signs of true salvation in them. In verses two and three, it says, we give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in, in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith, your labor of love, and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. In spite of the persecution that they're facing, in, in spite of all the things that they're encountering, all those difficulties, Paul clearly sees evidence that, they, that their lives have been changed, and he thanks God for that. And he begins by noting a faith that works. He's not simply noting people who say, yeah, I believe this. Or as some politicians say, I personally believe this, but I publicly profess this. And we see that all the time in certain circles around abortion. I personally believe that abortion is wrong, but I'm going to publicly keep it free and clear so anybody can have an abortion at any time. That's hypocrisy. That's a lack of integrity. And Paul is saying, we, I see in you a faith that works, a faith that isn't just lived out on Sunday, but a faith that has a presence, a working presence, Monday through Saturday. It's a belief system that lives out what we say we believe. And each of these affirmations, as Paul goes through them, he notices that there's almost a direction. John Stott notices that, that this Working faith seems to point upward to God. This is, it recognizes that the one true God is the God of the universe. But it also has a backwards look. Faith looks back saying, I can trust that God because I've seen him work in the past. And so I'm going to live in the present. I'm going to act faithfully in the present. It's an ability in the present to recognize that what is happening to me should not cause my faith in God and my living out that faith to waver. This week, I'm, I'm so grateful. Uh, Carolyn Ringling was, she was thinking through some of the concepts in the sermon, and she said, you know, I, I ran across this prayer. You see, in 1938, the Nazis started the Ravensbrück concentration camp for women. It's believed that some 132,000 women were in that concentration camp in the years that it was open from 1938 to 1945. One of those was, was uh, Corey Ten Boom, the author of The Hiding Place. Somewhere between 30,000 and 90,000 women were killed there. And when the Russian army finally liberated this concentration camp in 1945, they found this prayer. Now, I want you to hear this prayer of faith. It said, O oh Lord, remember not the men and women of goodwill, remember not only the men and women of goodwill, but also those of ill will. Do not remember all the suffering they have inflicted on us. Remember the fruits that we have brought thanks to this suffering, our comradeship, our loyalty, our courage, our generosity. The greatness of heart, which has grown out of all this, and when they come to judgment, let all the fruits which we have borne be their forgiveness. Imagine what it would be like to be a woman in that camp and be able to pray a prayer like that for those very same people who were beating you, who were torturing you, who would march you to gas chambers to be able to see 
with eyes of faith that what was happening now did not mean they should compromise. We may not have to face the atrocities like they did. We may never have to experience persecution, the persecution that pressed on the Thessalonians. Nonetheless, our faith should be a faith that works in times of peace and in times of problems. But Paul not only thanked them for their working faith, but their love that labors. So often when we think about love, it's easy to limit it to a hallmark kind of sentimentality. But this biblical love, the love that we receive from God, the love that we express toward one another is a selfless love. It's a love that works for someone else's benefit, even when there may not be anything that we gain in return. The labor of this love refers to a strength-reducing work. Pain, weariness, love hurts. Love like this can be exhausting. And just as faith had multiple directions, so too this laborious love is something that John Stott notes is outward toward others within the Christian fellowship and beyond it. And yet also it is is love that is working in the present. I think this is a love that we see in in guys like Brian and Sang, Pete and Nathan and Jennifer as they sacrifice time and energy and gas to go pick up food and bring it back so that we might bless those who are in need. This is a love that we see in people like Dan McNeil and Dan Herbert and Ned and Steve, Steve Lightcap and others as they lend their skills and expertise to help families with various housing projects. This is a love that we see in people like Misty and Michelle and Michelle and Mark. You have to have an M to be in this group. Actually, there's Sam and Joyce, Danielle and Jennifer and others who volunteer their time and prepare in order to pour out their lives in love for the children and kids connection. I think this is a love that we experience when we open our homes and our lives to one another. We like to reference things like 1 Corinthians 13 and weddings and anniversaries. But hear this encouragement from Paul as it relates to a labor of love toward each other and toward those who are outside the community of faith. Hear hear it as a description of God's love toward us as well. Love is patient and kind. That means that my time is not what's most important. Love does not envy or boast. I can be happy for you when things are going well for you, when you succeed, when you get that bonus or promotion or have that child or grandchild. And I can be humbled to discuss my blessings and my successes. Love is not arrogant or rude. Love does not insist on its own way. Your way might be just as good as mine. In our house, I know I've shared this before, there's a constant little battle over the dishwasher. I think the dishwasher should be filled one way, and other people have their own opinion. So I've just sort of given up. When I'm filling it, I do it my way and let them do it their way. Love does not insist on its own way. Love is not irritable or resentful. Sometimes we can be so irritating. And yet love says, let me be patient and kind toward you. 
It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices in truth. Love bears all things. Love believes all things. Love hopes all things. Love endures all things. Love never ends. Finally, Paul expresses gratitude that he sees in these believers for a hope that endures. Of these three signs, faith, love, and hope, this is the only one that, according to Stott, is future-oriented. It looks forward to that day when Jesus Christ is going to come back. It's looking forward in that confident expectation that Christ will return. Yeah, we've been waiting for years and years and years. In fact, one of the things that we're going to see when we, a little bit later in the book of Thessalonians is that these guys had questions about, return, about the return of Christ. Paul talked to them and he said, hey, it could come at any time. He could come back. And so they were worried about people who had died. Well, what, what's going to happen with those dead Christians now that Christ hasn't returned yet? Is he, when's he coming? And so many of us have had that same idea for years and years and years. God, when are you coming back? And yet hope, this hope that endures is a hope that says Jesus will return. No matter how bad things look, Jesus is coming Again, no matter how difficult, how long he takes, he may wait another 2,000 years and it will still be the perfect time. And so we must hope daily. It's not a waning desire or wishful thinking. It's a hope that says with, with the song, uh, th there's a song that I, I, I like. It's called, Is He Worthy? And it's kind of a call and response. And it asks the question, does the Father truly love us? He does. Does the Spirit move among us? He does. And does Jesus, our Messiah, hold those he loves? He does. And then that hope, does our God intend to dwell again with us? He does. John Piper, in thinking through this enduring hope, urged that we should long and pray for Jesus' coming. Continually, continually look forward with great expectation and yet still live and love in the present with a faith that is firmly established in the past. Hope, hope, hope. So let me just close with a couple thoughts. As you think about your relationship with God, are you basing your relationship with God on your religious activity? or on God's decisive, God's choosing of you? Have you responded by saying, yes, I believe? As I mentioned last night in our community group, some folks were sharing about how, how, they, how they came to faith. And one person said that they heard their pastor say, you know, you can't sit on the fence when it comes to God. You can't just, you can't straddle the fence hoping, oh, let me live a little in the world. Let me live a little for God. It's all or nothing. God's not going to take us halfway. And so I want to encourage you, if you've not yet responded to Christ, jump in, receive his gracious free gift of salvation. You can respond by, by, by just saying, God, I know I'm a sinner. I know you've done something for my sin. So I believe, I receive your gift. And I'd be happy to open scripture with you and talk to you about it. But I want to encourage you too, for those of you who are brothers and sisters in Christ, 
if you have responded, are the signs of faith, love, and hope evident in your life? And just as Paul could give thanks for the evidence of those things of faith, love, and hope in the Thessalonians, may we give thanks to God for the faith, love, and hope that we see exhibited in each other. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you. Thank you for Paul's encouragement to, the, to our brothers.